Okay, here we go. I want you to know that I've been arguing with God all week about the timing of this message. In fact, yesterday afternoon, if we're going to be totally transparent, I came to the church early thinking about changing the content completely and just doing something completely different. And when I got, I drove in all the way from Linden, got in here and uh, reached into the back seat of my car to grab my computer, which had the message on it, and it was not there. Had to turn around, drive all the way back. By the time I got back here, it was like, okay, God, we're going to dive in and continue this course. Uh, I want to just encourage the parents the same way. Uh, last night, people didn't believe me when I said PG-13, and so uh, this is what I need you to know. We have very uh, awesome uh, environments for your children here at Christ the King, and you should put them there um, unless you want to have uncomfortable conversations on the way home. All right, here we go. Let's dive in. So a married couple comes to my office and we get straight to the issues. He says, she's not meeting my sexual needs. She says, it's because he's not available to me emotionally. He says, I went outside of the relationship to get those sexual needs met. She says, I feel isolated, alone, and abandoned. And the one thing they can agree on is that it's complicated. A young woman comes and catches me in the parking lot, racked with guilt because of past moral decisions that she made. And her question to her pastor is, so can God ever forgive me for this? A young man comes in because he promised God over and over again he wouldn't go back to the porn on his computer, but he did. And as he sits in my office weeping, he once again allow shame to wash over him like a wave. An engaged couple comes in. They're getting ready to get married. And we unpack their relational history. And they come to the stunning realization that the moral choices they made earlier in their lives are threatening to undermine everything that they've built together. A young woman comes forward for prayer after a service, speaks with one of our after-service prayer team. She says, I was raped. Sex was used as a weapon. And her question is, where was God in that? A young man with unbelievable courage asks me to go out for coffee. And when we get there, there's no pleasant introductions. He just slides into a chair and he asks me this very pointed question. Does God really consider my chosen lifestyle a sin? And we have a conversation. That may surprise some. We actually talk. And we open the Bible together, and he reads what it is that God says. And I watch him struggle with questions that cut him to the core of his very soul. And as he leaves, these are the two things he says to me. Number one, thanks for not being a jerk. And number two, thanks for not hating me. And my heart breaks over the fact that followers of Jesus seem to be more known for our anger and our hate than for our love of God's truth and His grace. And in every one of the situations, I end up arguing with God. What's the deal with morals? What's the deal with sexual morality? And the argument kind of ends up going like this. How can something that was supposed to be so unbelievably good, like human sexuality, cause so much pain for people? 
I just went through a list of questions. How can something that you wired us for get so twisted? How can this part of life be so misunderstood? Why don't you protect it better? Why did you draw the lines where you drew them? And Why is the issue of morality so controversial? Why is there so much guilt and shame and pain attached to it? And why is holding to your standards so unbelievably tough? And, and why does the conversation have to get angry all of the time? And why are people mean? How are we supposed to hold to your truth and still be gracious with people? And where is the line of grace and truth? And I didn't want to say it, but I was thinking about the argument I had with God as a 16-year-old hormonally charged, fear and guilt-driven church kid that really hit on the underlying argument. With all due respect, at 16, this was my question to God. God, why are you such a prude? Don't freak out. Stick with me, Okay. This is a tough topic, and it's a hot button in our modern world right now, and, and the lines have been drawn, and it's uncomfortable to talk about. Can I ask you to do me a favor? Can we just get comfortable with the level of tension that surrounds this and just have a conversation about morality without it going all weird and twisted? I, I, I thought I was doing myself a, a, you know, a, a favor by only biting off a little piece. I was only going to talk about sexual morality. <laughs> found out that bite was a little bigger than I thought it was. We could have talked about morality and business ethics. We could have talked about morality in the medical world. But, but we're going to just struggle together today. Because I know we're all struggling at some level with this. Let me give you the, de the dictionary definition of morality. Okay, It actually says this. It's conformity to the rules of right conduct, moral or virtuous conduct. Secondly, it says it's moral quality or character. Thirdly, it defines it as virtue in sexual matters or chastity. And number four, it says it's a doctrine or a system of morals. I mean, you just read the definition, it seems kind of restrictive, doesn't it? It seems a little rigid. In fact, if you back up and just use the word moral, you'll find you know, an even different definition. It says of pertaining to or concerned with the principles or rules of right conduct or the distinction between right and wrong. So it's supposed to be about right or wrong. It's supposed to be about black or white. But in our culture, can we just admit that it quickly moves from black or white to various shades of gray? Okay, if you got that, I'm glad you're here. All right? Be like, what? <laughs> Good, all right. Let's just talk about morality in the 21st century. My observation is that culture says that sex is God. Let me tell you why I believe that. Open a magazine and sex is selling. You know, turn on a TV, sex is the punchline of the comedy. Open a romance novel and sex is enticing. Open your computer and sex is everywhere. I mean, we're just foolish and lying to ourselves if we don't believe that American culture has a voracious appetite for sexual content. According to the New York Times, last year, they wrote an article, Americans spent more money on pornography. We spent somewhere between 10 and $14 billion. B, not M, B. Okay, we spent more money on pornography than the combined incomes of professional baseball, basketball, and football combined. Let that settle in for a second. I mean, apparently, we say baseball is America's favorite pastime. Apparently not. Okay? And it's not just a male issue because the fastest growing demographic when it comes to pornography addiction is actually women. The Apostle Paul addresses this kind of appetite head on in Philippians 3. This is what he says. He says, For as often as I've told you before, and now say again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Their destiny's destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Paul's just saying this. He's saying, Paul, people will go to great lengths to satisfy their appetite, even to the point of destroying their lives and their families. I think we can all admit sexuality is blatant in our culture, right? I mean, it's everywhere. You don't even need to go looking for it anymore. It'll come looking for you in your house. It's everywhere and it communicates a message. Sex is God and you need to worship it. And if you don't, there's something wrong with you. On the other end of the scale from culture is this thing called religion. Okay? Religion says that sex is dirty. Okay, this is how I grew up, right? This is what I was told. Sex is bad. Stay away. And my interpretation led me to a very logical conclusion that somehow sex was both dirty and gross. And it developed this really weird thing in my brain because all of a sudden I experienced what I call spiritual whiplash. Because this is how I grew up for the first 20 years of my life. It went like this. Sex is bad. Sex is gross. Run, flee, save yourself. It's bad, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. Run away, run away, run away, run away. It's bad, it's bad, it's bad. Wait, you're married. Go. But we don't talk about that here. What? I mean, let me tell you what that teaches. It goes like this. Sex is gross, so save it for the one you love. What? (laughs) That's helpful. The religious angle can be really confusing, especially when Christians use their Bible as weapons and forget. We just forget that we are sinners saved by grace. I ran into a religious guy up on Western's campus. Some of you have seen him there. He's holding a huge sign that makes a bold proclamation. God hates, and then he filled in the blank with a particular sin that he found very offensive. And he was shouting at people, and if anybody tried to engage him in a conversation, he would blow a whistle until you stopped talking. Some of you, you've met him, okay? So I happened to stumble into one of these conversations because I saw the sign. I was attracted by the name of God. I was repelled by everything else that was on the sign. And I'm standing on the outside of the circle and nobody's been able to engage it. And and all of a sudden it's one of those moments where somebody says, Hey, you're a pastor. What do you think? (laughs) Wee, right? (laughs) The religious guy had been using a list from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He was making a point about the depravity of mankind. And he'd singled out one particular sin on the list. And he was loudly declaring that if you engaged in that particular sin, you were wicked, evil, and you would not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, I knew the list. So I asked him a question. Have you ever been greedy in your life? Ever? He said, of course I have. You're on the list. He said, have you ever ever slandered or spoken badly about somebody? It was hard for him to deny that considering the sign he was holding. (laughs) Have you, ever, have you ever spoken badly about anybody? Well, sure. You're on the list. You're two for two. And then he started whistling at me and I didn't get to say anything else. So, um, <laughs> We're really good at pointing at other people's sin, aren't we? We're really good at just going down the list and then tapping our finger on it and going... We forget that it's supposed to be this. 
Religion always focuses on the rule, never on the process or the personal confession of making things right with God. Let's keep on moving. Religion says that sex is gross. Skeptics say that God's view of sexuality is repressive. I actually subscribe to several non-Christian blogs because I like to know what's really going on in culture and in the world. There's a young man named Chaz Booth. I don't know if I'm pronouncing your name right. I'm sorry if I, if I mispronounced it. But he wrote an article in his blog entitled 20 Reasons to Abandon Christianity. These are his words. In addition to the misery produced by authoritarian Christian intrusions into the sex lives of non-Christians, Christianity produces great misery amongst its own adherents through its insistence that sex, except for the very narrow variety that it sanctions, is evil and against God's law. Indulging in such things can and will, in the conventional Christian view, lead you straight to hell. And then he goes on to make an argument, and he says, what we need to do is cast off all of our restraint, embrace our animal instincts, give in to our urges, do whatever we want with whoever we want, whenever we want, and to whatever extent we want. And he goes on record as saying, any restriction to those kinds of urges in their minds is considered archaic and restrictive and repressive. I mean, if you read the skeptics, they will say, they actually say, we believe that God is the ultimate prude, the ultimate joy stealer, the ultimate phobic. And that is unbelievably ironic because the truth is that God is actually the exact opposite of that. Now, this is where it's going to get hard, okay? But I just, can we just continue to have the conversation? According to the Bible, God says that sex is a gift. He says it's a gift. I'm going to hit the context of sexuality in a minute. But the Bible talks openly about the beauty of physical intimacy between a husband and a wife. And here's what the Bible says sex is for. Okay, firstly, the Bible teaches that sex is for pleasure and comfort. If you read the book, in fact, the Bible dedicates an entire book to it. The Song of Solomon very, very clearly lays out the beauty of pleasure and comfort between a husband and a wife, which means this. Anyone who ever told you that sex didn't feel good in order to keep you from actually participating in it before you were supposed to, they were lying. They were lying. Okay? It's pleasurable. It provides comfort within the right context. In fact, I believe as a male who is married that God was at his absolute best when he created this. In my humble opinion. Okay. And I would encourage you as a coherent thinking reading adult to actually read the context of Song of Solomon. Don't do it the way I did. Because remember I told you during the Sermon on Hell about going to the Bible camp and they would throw the log on the fire at the end and scare the hell out of you so you'd come to Jesus and all the rest of that. Well, another part of that camp experience was laying in my bunk at night with my sleeping bag over my head with a flashlight reading the Bible, and that's the book I was reading. So that's weird and twisted and awkward. Let's keep moving. Okay, um, <laughs> you should read it, okay? Secondly, the Bible teaches that sex is for oneness. Genesis 2.24 says, the husband and wife will become one flesh. You know, one of the beautiful aspects of God's plan for sexuality is that two actually become one. You become one in spirit, one in body. And the problem in our modern culture is that a lot of people try to separate out their body from their spirit. The Bible says that your body and your spirit are inextricably placed together. So we can't separate it out. One of the beautiful aspects, like I said, is that two become one. Here's the problem for some of you, and believe me, I'm going to hit the married people in a second. Here's the problem for some of you who are not married, but you're having sex anyway. You're not 
one, you're two. You have two lives, two agendas, two trajectories. You're going in two completely different directions. And the issue is this. The issue is the fact you've never addressed the issues of permanency in your relationship. The way you address permanency, the Bible calls a covenant. And a covenant does not just involve two broken human beings making promises to each other that they struggle to keep. A covenant is made when you actually add God to the equation. God says, I want to be a part of that covenant so that when your two actually become one, you're actually one, not just in body, but in spirit. See, when you come together as one, you share the deepest part of your body and soul. And two become one, and that's a miracle, and you can't do that if you're actually two. Okay, thirdly, the Bible teaches that sex is for creating children. Okay? Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and increase in number. Okay, if you don't know that, we need to have a very different conversation at a different time, okay? But one of the blessings of healthy sexuality is actually manifested in, in the beauty of children. I've experienced that twice. I still struggle to believe it was 19 and 16 years ago when they handed me these beautiful little bundles and I watched them grow. Okay, fourthly, the Bible teaches that sex is for knowledge. Genesis 4.1 says, Adam lay with his wife Eve, and he knew her. I love those words. And this is the reality of it, okay? And it's awkward because my wife is actually here in the service right now. So Laurel knows me, okay? Like she knows me. Without being freaky, she knows me, okay? For 25 years, she's known me. But she doesn't just know me physically. She knows my fears, my sin, my past, my present, my insecurities, my fear. She knew I was freaking out yesterday coming to church. She prayed for me. I mean, she just knows me. And I'll tell you a true definition of intimacy. It's when somebody knows me, Laurel knows me, and she stays. In spite of myself, she stays. For 25 years. And it's not because she's just in love with this physical package because the reaction is not that good, right? I mean, 45, tipping towards 50, gravity, it's, you know, anyway, um, okay, that was weird, sorry, off script. Um, but that's intimacy. Some of you are married. Let me pick on the married people for a second. You're married and you can't figure out why it's off in the bedroom. I'll tell you why. It's because you are one, but you're living like you're two. You have two different agendas, two different lives, and you're moving in two completely different directions and you can't figure it out. I'll tell you the reason for that. It's because there's no vulnerability, no knowledge, no trust, and so you can't connect at the deepest part of your heart level. And here's your homework. If you're married and you're disconnected in the bedroom, you need to go home this afternoon and you need to learn what it means to pursue each other. Pastor's orders. Here's number four. Or the last one, sorry. The Bible teaches that sex is for protection. The Bible says this in 1 Corinthians 7. It says, Now for the matters that you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. I want to give you the context. Paul's actually talking here about how cool it is to be single. Okay? Being single is amazing. In fact, if you're here and you're single, God bless you because you actually have an opportunity to be able to connect with God in an unbelievably deep way. And on behalf of my single brothers and sisters, I'd like to say to all those of you who are married, who keep trying to hook them up with everybody and anybody, knock it off. 
Okay? Sex is not a disease, or sorry, singleness is not Freudian slip. <laughs> I'm tired. You have no idea. Singleness is not a disease that gets cured by getting married. Okay? If you're single, you're in a beautiful spot. So married people, quit trying to get all your single friends married. Leave them alone and let them fall in love with Jesus. And when Jesus says it's time for a relationship, he'll take over. And if the answer is no, that'll be good enough because they're already be in love with Jesus already. All right? There we go. My single friends, you're welcome. Okay? So it's not good for a man, or it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Some of you are like, that's in the Bible? I'm like, you bet. It says the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. God is saying intimacy provides protection within a healthy relationship. God is saying that human sexuality is supposed to express beauty and joy. It's never supposed to express selfishness or personal gain. It's not about getting something from your spouse. It's never supposed to be about manipulation or power. It's always supposed to be about love and acceptance in the proper context. According to the Bible, I'd love to share with you what the proper context is. And I understand fully how tender this topic is for people, especially right now, okay? I want you to know God's ideal because I also understand there may be people here who completely disagree with me. What I want you to know is this. Your struggle is not with me. Your struggle is with what Scripture says. And we would love to be a part of that conversation because we're all trying to figure this stuff out together. But this is God's ideal for sexual activity. And I actually want to break it down into the Trinity because every person of the Trinity, all three pe persons of the Godhead, they all make the same statement together. Some of us don't know this, okay? So let's go all the way back to creation, first of all. God said to Moses in Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Okay, so that's God the Father, Jehovah, speaking about his design. Fast forward a couple of thousand years, okay? Jesus, the Son of God, and God the Son comments on exactly the same issue and he says, I hear this all the time, well, Jesus never ever speaks about... Like, yes, he does. Matthew 19, Jesus said, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made the male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. So we've got God the Father saying, this is my design. Then we've got God the Son saying, this is my design. And then we just jump ahead a couple of decades and we hear the Apostle Paul speaking, but we need to understand something. The Bible says that all Scripture is God-breathed, which means this is the Holy Spirit speaking through a guy named Paul. And Paul said this. He said, For this reason, 
A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Here's what I want you to see. Do you notice the symmetry of the message all the way through? God the Father says it. God the Son says it. God the Holy Spirit says exactly the same thing. Same message in very different sexual contexts, okay? Back in the original, at this point, the world was still perfect. Nothing was twisted, nothing was broken, sin hadn't even entered into the picture yet, and God says, this is my design. Fast forward a couple of thousand years later, and we're in the midst of a Judeo culture, a Jewish culture, which was still highly moral and highly motivated, and Jesus, into the middle of that, speaks exactly the same message. Then the Holy Spirit says to Paul, and it comes out of the book of Ephesians, that's what I read to you, he says to Paul exactly the same message, and Paul just writes it down for him. Here's the issue you need to know. That's the one that has a different cultural context, okay? Because he was writing to the Ephesians. Right before that, he was writing to the Corinthians. Let me put it to you nicely. The city of Corinth makes Las Vegas look like a kindergarten classroom. It was messed up. And into the middle of all of that, Paul says, through the Holy Spirit, the plan hasn't changed. He says this is God's plan. And then his plan goes even further. And I put it in your outline this way. And I want to say this as tenderly as I can. Because I understand what's going on in the world today. The Bible actually teaches that sexual intimacy is encouraged. It's encouraged within the context of a monogamous, lifelong, heterosexual marriage. And let's just be honest. This is where it gets weird, doesn't it? God lays out his plan, and some of us hear that, and our shame button gets pushed because of decisions we made, and we're like, already messed up, can never go back. Some of us read that, and we just like, I, don't know, I can't do that. I'm not down with that. Some of us look at that definition and go, that sounds nuts. That sounds repressive. That sounds restrictive. It's so typically Christianly narrow-minded. Some of us look at it and we're just like, nope. Nope, just not doing it. I understand. I understand. And yet I want to just repeat what I said before. This is what the Word of God says. And we need to struggle with it. And it's okay to struggle with it. I want to remind you of something. When we talked about hell, I stated that the fear of hell is a terrible reason to follow Jesus. I mean, fear is not a great motivator because the second fear is gone, we go right back where we started, right? So here's a moment of transparency for you, okay? I was a virgin when I got married, not because I was holy, but because I was terrified, okay? I believed if I crossed a certain line, God would strike me dead. Like just gazap, lightning from heaven, ashes everywhere. That's what I believed. I thought God would just kill me. I got caught up in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, which does say flee sexual immorality. Let me explain it to you. The Greek word there is porneia, okay? Which is a catch-all term for everything that falls outside of God's design for sexuality. That's why I told you what God's design was. 
And the Bible says that we're to flee anything that falls outside of God's plan. So that's what I did. I fled. I ran. I ignored. I avoided. I did everything I could to try and stay away from it. I mean, this was my mature response. It's like a 17, 18-year-old guilt-driven church kid. I mean, anything that was sexual, this was my response. La, 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 no, 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 go away. That was helpful, right? Here was the problem. I was running away from something, but I wasn't running to anything. You see the difference? When God says flee sexual immorality, he isn't just saying run from sex. He's saying run to me and understand the gift in the right context. He's saying run to me and find forgiveness for your past because God's the only one who can put those dreams back together again. He's saying, run to me and let me redeem those urges and passions and your thoughts and your memories and your failures and your dreams. He's saying, run to me and find strength to hold on to my standard. Because can we agree that God's standard is hard to hold on to in the 21st century? It's tough. It's not easy. He says, run to me and find the purity that only I can give and only I can give again. He says, run to me. Find real intimacy so you don't fall for the counterfeits. He says, run to me and find out what it means to be in a healthy human relationship. And you'll find out that you can only have a healthy human relationship if you have a healthy relationship with God. He says, run to me and I'll help you understand that within the right context, sex is a beautiful, beautiful gift. Last night on the way into church, uh, Wendy Powell grabbed me and... uh, She'd heard another pastor preach on the same topic and she had this great little nugget and it was awesome and obviously this guy's way smarter than I am so I'm just going to quote him. He says, we, put, we only put fences around things that are dangerous or precious. And God put a fence around this because it's both. We only put fences around things that are dangerous or precious. And God put a fence around this because it's both. I uh, completely understand that this is a tension-filled, difficult conversation at times. I would love for Christ the King to always be a place where we could have these hard conversations. I really would. My hope and prayer is that we would somehow find a way to hold on to God's truth and at the same time, wrap it in grace because sometimes it's just uncomfortable. No matter what I say this morning, some of you are going to be convinced that the only reason I'm talking about this is because of what will happen in our country on Tuesday. And I'm probably not going to be able to talk you out of it, at least believing that. But I will tell you this, that was actually not even in my thought process. I didn't talk about this because of what's coming this Tuesday. I talk about this because of what happened two Wednesdays ago. I had an opportunity to come to DOXA, which is our high school ministry, and I presented a little thing called How to Date My Daughter. It was a very short session. All I said was, you don't date my daughter. And I think I scared the younger male population of Christ the King half to death by the time I was done. What I told that group of amazing young people 
was that my daughter, McKenna, is not a princess because her dad's a prince. My daughter's a princess because her heavenly father is a king. And I expect her to be treated as one of God's daughters. Well, we did the whole thing. And at the end, young people had an opportunity to text in questions about sexuality and morality and dating and sex and all kinds of stuff. And I could not believe the pain that came out in those texts. I sat in my car behind the building and bawled like a little kid. I know that surprises some of you, but I did. How could something that's supposed to be so beautiful in the right context create so many tears? So I'm going to tell you why I spoke about this this weekend. It has nothing to do with Tuesday. It had everything to do with the fact that if we as a church don't have the courage to tell young people about the beauty of God's plan, if we don't send out that message, if we don't fill in their blanks, somebody else will. And my hope and prayer today is that you'll hear God's heart in this. That he wants us to have this gift in the right place. And the reason he gave it to us is because he loves us. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for speaking the truth. Father, thank you for allowing us to struggle and even argue with you. God, help us to be humble enough to see and hear your heart without getting all freaked out and angry. God, I pray that you would help us to know where the line is between truth and grace. God, I pray that you would help my single brothers and sisters. I pray that you would help my married brothers and sisters. I pray that you would help those who may agree with me. And I pray your blessing over those that may not. I pray that we would have the opportunity to continue talking having a conversation, seeking God in all things. Lord, I thank you for your word, even when it may make us uncomfortable. Lord Jesus, I thank you for a church that doesn't want to tap dance around hard things. Lord, I pray that you would be the answer to our questions. And I pray that today we might be more free because of your heart for us. We pray these things in your powerful, loving and forgiving name. God's people said,